Post-production for this episode of Fruit Bowl is sponsored by Spaces, the new chat-based app for queer people to connect over all the things they're passionate about. Join a space and chat about your favorite topics, or create a space of your own and invite your friends, or share it with the larger community. All in a safe, LGBT-friendly environment powered by Hornet. Look for Spaces in the App Store now. This past week, the World Health Organization designated monkeypox a global public health emergency. The outbreak is mostly affecting men who have sex with men, so it's important that we inform ourselves and look out for each other. Monkeypox is spread by sexual contact or close social contact with an infected person, as well as contact with the bedding and utensils that infected people use. A rash is usually the first sign of infection and can look like pimples or blisters that appear on the face, inside the mouth, and on other parts of the body, including hands, feet, chest, genitals, and anus. Other symptoms include fever, chills, and exhaustion. It can take one to two weeks for any signs to appear, and during incubation, an infected person is not contagious. The illness typically lasts two to four weeks, and during that time, infected people need to stay quarantined from other people as well as pets. There is a vaccine, but due to manufacturing and distribution limitations, it's not widely available right now in the U.S. Reach out to your local health departments or your personal care providers for information about vaccines and treatment options. If you contract monkeypox, it doesn't mean you're a bad person or a slut or that you deserve it. Make sure you inform people who you may have exposed. It might be a difficult call or text to make, but it's necessary to help stop the spread and protect our community. And if you need help, reach out. The best thing for us to do right now is to stay vigilant, look out for each other, and practice compassion for ourselves and our community. I'll provide a link in the show notes of this episode for the Centers for Disease Control if you want more information. If you're like me and grew up in the analog age, before digital photos and the internet, You likely have albums and scrapbooks that hold some of the meaningful memories that you've collected over the years. My guest for this episode, Mike, describes himself as an accidental gay historian. And fortunately for us, he's offered to share an amazing archive of photos and ephemera that he describes in his interview. I've created a virtual photo album on the webpage for this episode that includes many of the different people and documents that he describes. Many of the photos are very sexy and provide a glimpse of what it was like to live as a gay man coming of age during the height of the sexual revolution. If you want to learn more about Mike's life, you can check out his Instagram, bammer47, where he shares thoughts about queer history, and the current state of queer culture. Passion Fruit, the first ever live Fruit Bowl event, will take place here in Seattle on Thursday, August 4th, 2022, in Century Ballroom's West Hall, and I'm excited to share the lineup with you. Brianna Mendoza will present a reading of her funny and irreverent book, The Clitoris Chronicles. Seattle Comics' Lee Nakazi and Rohini Jayanthi will perform stand-up and storytelling. The musical group Creature Hole will be performing a couple of songs, and Latina K. Turner De Ho will entertain us with some burlesque. I'll also be presenting the world premiere of a new short film that features many of the interviewees of past seasons who identify as femme, trans, non-binary, and genderqueer. Admission is free with complimentary cocktails and snacks. So if you're in Seattle, come out and see us. I'll put an RSVP link in the show notes of this episode. 
thanks to the Spaces app and Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture for sponsoring Passion Fruit. I am still accepting short submissions from Fruitbow listeners for a future listener submission episode. You can send them to me via Spaces or email, or you can record yourself using your phone's voice memo app and email the file to me, Dave, at fruitbowlpodcast.com. This month, I'm using the money raised on Patreon to pay the performers for Passion Fruit. Currently, we are at 44 patrons who provide $287 a month to help pay for things like performer allowance, website maintenance, music licenses, and promotional efforts. Learn more at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to Danny Tayara, who edited this episode, and Ryan Whedon, who did the final mix. Okay, that's enough from me. Now, here's Mike. I learned about queer sex in the same way I did about straight sex. It was on the playground. This is Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. My name is Mike. I'm 69 and a half, will turn 70 in May, and I graduated from high school in 1970. This episode was recorded in February of 2022 in San Diego. I was raised in the Florida panhandle, uh, an area some people call Florabama. It was extremely conservative, very religious, and very homophobic. My parents were kind of northern carpetbaggers running away from their families and the Jewish religion and my grandfather's movie business. And my father wanted nothing to do with any of that. And my mother was trying to escape her family. And they moved to this remote area five miles north of Bonifay, population 2,222 on a cattle ranch with 300 Black Angus registered cattle. And we were the only Jewish family, a bunch of Northerners in the South, fairly well off among poor academics, among jocks. I was left-handed and secretly gay. In the 50s and 60s, when I grew up, being homosexual and open about it could get you thrown in a mental institution. It certainly would get you kicked out of your family, excommunicated by your church, and fired from your job. So nobody wanted to be that way. So you did whatever you had to to deny it to yourself and then to others and to pass and ideally to change. You have to understand that I did not allow myself to think about that. I could not be that way. It wasn't acceptable. I also was in a Jewish family with high standards for grades and achievement, and I was going to be the best little boy in the world. But beneath that, there are the moments of these subliminal expressions of attraction you're not even mindful of, that if you go back and mine your childhood, you can remember. I remember being five in kindergarten, and we were at recess playing out behind a big tree in the backyard. And Andy uh, and Sherry and I were playing doctor behind the tree. And all I wanted to do was look at Andy. He was the coach's son. He would end up being the golden boy on, of all sports teams. And at age five, I already knew that. Now, looking back at those photos now, he doesn't look all that different from everybody else. I don't know what it was. I think the people that I ended up having crushes on throughout my childhood and adolescence tended not only to be good-looking, but they were charismatic. And so I wanted to be their best friend. I wanted to be in them. I wanted to sp- spend all the time I could with them. You know, it, there was no sexuality to it. We didn't, we didn't have hormones flowing, you know, at least until adolescence. And there was no consciousness of what that could mean. It was just, I knew I wanted to be with Andy, not Sherry. And then age 10, my brother and I were at the swimming pool complex 10 miles away that we were driven to in a school bus every morning. And we went outside the complex and found a, a kind of a fence that you, you opened a toggle switch and you went into a, a, a crawl space or an alley that was between the men's and women's dressing room. And he was looking through a knothole, maybe age seven, into the women's dressing room. And I was looking through a knothole at age 10 into the men's dressing room. And he remembers thinking, 
why don't you just go in the, in the men's room and look? In the meantime, I'm going, come over here. And he's going, no, you come over here. And on some level, I knew I shouldn't be sharing that, but maybe I thought he was my brother and he might have the same feelings. Uh, and it was only in, in adolescence and puberty and, you know, in the hormones rage that it started to manifest itself differently. But even then, sex was so taboo. And the concept of being gay and being shunned was so intense that I wouldn't con contemplate even in my fantasies having sex. Frankly, the idea of doing all those things I heard about with other boys was gross. I just wanted to be romantic cowboys with them. I was never formally educated about sex. None of the schools I attended through ninth grade in uh, the South and afterwards in Connecticut in 10th through 12th grades ever offered any sex education. When you grow up in a very rural, conservative area like it did, everything happens through your friends. And uh, schoolyard banter, people talking about fucking and telling you how it worked. I don't remember what they said about it, but just you had an idea of the notion that men and women did this thing and that babies came from it. I had parents who, for example, they told us we were allowed to drink, but do it at home. Also, my dad was a rebel who got high on marijuana in the 40s with jazz musicians in Greenwich Village. It wasn't like there was a prudishness around drugs or sex. It just wasn't spoken about. We had a subscription to Playboy that came to our home when my sister was eight and I was 14. There was mostly female nudity, but there was some gratuitous male frontal nudity, particularly in, I think it was Sex in the Cinema series that ran throughout the, the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, and I devoured it. My first exposure to sex was masturbation. But I thought you, all you needed to do was tug at it five or ten times, and then, and then whatever would happen would happen. And I gave up. So I, I was kind of frustrated by it, but of course I didn't want to admit that I didn't know it. But I kept hearing from all these guys what you did. So of course I attempted it. The first time I ever successfully masturbated to orgasm was at the sleepover party I held in our cattle ranch in my 12th or 13th year on my birthday. My parents were not there. Late in the evening, I remember somebody mentioned, why don't we have a circle jerk? So I organized it in our guest room, but I was embarrassed, partly by the fact that I didn't know how to do it, partly because I had a, a mole on my groin, which was all, in some measure for me was the embodiment of everything about me that was different and shameful. So I made excuses to organize and stand at the door and make sure it wasn't disrupted rather than participate. And everybody pulled their pants down and started jerking, and eventually they came one by one, and, and that was it. Later on in my bed, I did what I'd seen them do, and I came, and I was so joyful that I went and blurted it out to one of the other guys or so. So anyway, that's my full circle story. I spent my late teens and early 20s denying my attraction to boys, hoping I could change it, thinking the right woman would help me do that coming up with all kinds of excuses, playing sports. I wasn't all that good, but I played college football and I pole vaulted and track and I played rugby. And I ended up immersing myself and growing to love sports, but it was all done as a way of hiding and proving to myself that I was straight because everyone knew at the time there were no gay athletes, gay male team athletes. Of course, that's not the case. Uh, but when I got out of college and no longer had sports as a crutch and I was miserable in my first job, I was on my way to work one day and I noticed a newspaper headline, Dave Cope, former NFL Redskin, comes out. The first prominent athlete in the world to ever openly acknowledge that he was gay. And it, it rocked me. It rocked my world. I, I took that paper. I locked the door in my office. I devoured it. My heart was racing. And I wrote him a letter care of the newspaper journalist who forwarded it. And two weeks later, he called me up, looked up my number, called me up, and invited me out for, for a drink and became a bar buddy, a mentor of sorts. And in fact, Dave Cope would write a bestseller on the New York Times, would be a gay spokesman for a while. He's now 80 in an assisted living facility, a longtime friend of mine, and I'm going to be re reissuing his biography later this year because that story needs to be known by younger LGBTQ people. So that was in December of 75. A month later, I tell my best friend in grad school, uh, I think I might be gay. 25 years later, he came out. 
but at the time he was marrying another woman I knew from grad school. A month later, I went into a bar and met my first affair, who spent two weeks with me and let me know what that could be, even though he was in a throuple relationship back in the Bay Area when he was with me. And in July 76, during the bicentennial weekend, I told my mother I was gay. She seemingly took it pretty well. She later on told me, I was so proud of how I handled it. So it was all about her. Um, my father, when I told him that I was gay months later, it turns out my mom had already told me against my explicit request. And he used that opportunity to share with me his dirty secret. So for two years before my mother knew, I knew that my dad was having an affair. That was his way of bonding with me. Uh, so I, I don't really think it mattered very much to them. They weren't comfortable, but they were accepting. My brother was really good looking. And his first reaction was, why me? Because everywhere he'd been picked up while hitchhiking and people put the moves on him. He had a business partner who ended up being gay and in love with him and became his roommate. You know, everywhere he went, he ran into gay men because he was good looking. Uh, and now his brother comes out to him. But beyond that initial reaction, he was fine. So my coming out was around 24. And in the 1970s, that was early. Most people didn't come out if they came out until their 30s or 40s. And usually they tried to segment their lives and compartmentalize it and have a straight life and a gay life. And everyone in their, in their straight world thought they were straight. And secretly they had a gay life. I couldn't live that way. I knew I, I either had a choice, be asexual or homosexual. In college I had a fraternity brother who fell up, passed out in my bed. And then when I tried to budge him and everyone else had left after the party that was in my room, muttered under his breath, you can do whatever you want. And he was attractive enough, but he wasn't the one guy that I had a crush on. I wasn't going to have this little quick thing with him there and know that next day he would have that knowledge of me. Whereas if the guy that I had a crush on had done that, I would have been willing to give up the world for him. And uh, in March of 1975, I was in my one year of grad school at, at Tufts in Boston. I was 22. I had had no sex. And I'm increasingly starting to fear I might be gay. And there are no positive examples out there. There are no media representations, no images. You thought of gay and you thought Liberace or Paul Lynn, the comedian. And those weren't me. I was an athlete. But I was reading things and buying things, and I was as educated as you could be on what limited amount of material was that. I, and so I knew from things like that what being gay meant, but I wasn't re yet ready to let myself be that way. But I'm starting to fear that I can't be any other way, and I'm horny. I guess here's an opportunity to find out if this is really me or not. And so I answered an ad in the Boston After Dark, Boston Phoenix underground newspaper, you know, Boston University med student seeks money for tuition, willing to do anything, basically man or woman. Good looking, 5'11", 175, whatever. I still have the little cutout. I, I'm a sentimentalist and I save things like that. Um, and so I, and back in those days, there was no you know, internet, there was no texting. It was all done through letters in post office boxes that took days and weeks to get back and forth. And I arranged to meet this guy at a bar in Harvard Square. And then I drove down to my little car and met him there, nervous as hell. He walked in, he had long hair, because in the 1975, guys wore their hair long. And he was good looking, but he didn't matter to me. I'd never met him, I, there was no spark. And yet I wanted to know what it was like, so I went ahead with it as an exercise and drove him back to my dorm on the Tufts campus my roommate was gone for the weekend in the suite we had. I had to get high on marijuana in order to even contemplate doing anything. And we ended up going in the little tiny bedrooms that we had in the suite, and he gave me two blowjobs. And I even offered to reciprocate, not knowing if I wanted to. And he said, I, I don't think you'll like it. You, you don't have to. And um, afterwards, I recall having felt almost like I was in an out-of-body experience above the bed watching me get blown by this guy, noticing and experiencing and feeling. And of course, I came buckets and it was extremely pleasurable. And afterwards, the thought was, you know, that didn't really mean anything. 
but what if it were this guy that I had a crush on in, in, when I was younger? What if it was that guy and we were doing this? I think I might be gay. And of course, he, oh, I drove him home 40 minutes afterwards because I'm that kind of guy. And uh, he didn't ask for money, which he had been seeking in his ad. I got a letter through the post office box a week later. He wanted to get back together again. And, you know, he's ostensibly not gay or is anything or everything. And there was something about me and us that he wanted. And I was like, no fucking way. And I just avoided responding. The only time I had sex with a woman, I was living in New York City. I was 24 and a half. And um, she was the sister of the man I was in love with who was straight in his bed while he was, he was away for the weekend. He was a former a captain of an Ivy League football team, t tight end, and New England Patriot draftee. So I'm a jock. He was a jock. We bonded. Um, he was handsome. There was charisma. She called me up and invited herself on a movie date with me. I was going alone on a wintry Friday evening. And I had only met her twice at her brother's. I'm like, okay. And I knew that we'd be simpatico. And I said to myself, don't tell her that you're gay. Don't tell her you're attracted to her brother. I drove her home after we were out all night uh, drinking at my father's jazz nightclub. And I actually had, long story short, I, I had told her I had something to do at midnight, which was to go out to the gay bars. I needed to find my way in New York. I didn't have a gay friend. And midnight came and went, and she said, didn't you have something to do? Yeah, it's okay. I've decided not to. What were you going to do? Go to a bar. What kind of bar? And I can't lie. So I said, a gay bar. And it all came spilling out. And when I drove her home two hours later, we're both drunk on a slippery and slidey, icy street. We get to her brother's apartment where she's staying and he's gone. And she invites me up for a drink and I give her a look. And she goes, I'm not going to rape you, which is effectively what she did. Uh, so I was happy to prove I could do it. And there was no expectation on her part that anything beyond that was going to happen. We were still on good terms. She was looking to find a place in New York and was going to become a model. And she'd been staying in her brother's place for a while, and that was getting crowded. So I don't know. I probably proposed it. I, I liked her. We were good enough friends. He actually eventually asked his sister if I was gay. When the fact that we were living together and the lack of heat between us became apparent, and she goes, why don't you ask Bam, which was my nickname. Uh, he didn't. And eventually one evening, long after, when we were drunk, he said, Bam, how come it's taking so long to tell me you're, you're bi? I said, I'm not bi, I'm gay. And it's really hard with telling guys and close friends. And so he was accepting it. But we ended up on this vacation. And in the Caribbean, as I was leaving the job we were both part of, I was going to move on. I didn't like it. Uh, and I was, from that, going to become much more liberated and kind of a hippie for a while. He was very straight-laced and conventional and was going to go back into the conservative full. Didn't know that was happening. And we planned this vacation. And I said, don't you want me to invite your sister and this other woman that we were very close to, who I later found out he'd been having sex with a few times. And no, no, I just want to go away and be, be, just be alone and chill out and be with you. I'm like, okay. And so I thought I read signals into that. And when I finally, you know, we're out under the moon and stars in the Caribbean by ourselves, drinking and smoking marijuana and doing poppers. We may even be doing coke, I can't remember. And Donna Summer's Breathe the Album is playing. I mean, this really sultry. And, it, and after I hit a pop, she goes, what do you want to do now? I said, well, what I'd really, and I'm a verbal person. I would never put a move on somebody. Certainly not like that. So I said, what I'd like to do is take another hit of poppers and then hold you. And he said, Bam, how can you tell someone who means as much to me as you do or who you love as much as I love you, you can't give them what they need? And that's a totally, you know, understandable and appropriate response. But since I was only asking for the hug, I felt rejected. I was crushed. And I pulled within, and the rest of the week I was lousy company. And when the week came to an end, he shot off onto the plane like a bullet, and that our friendship was destroyed. You know, I think he might have feared that if we had had a hug, more would have happened, and he didn't, he didn't want to let it happen. But I couldn't see that. I was just so crushed by the rejection. Meanwhile, his sister doesn't like me saying this, but she thought he might be gay as well because he just wasn't having things with women. I fell out of contact with him for a long time until recently, but I, I, I mean, I left on decent terms with her brother. It's just that the, the mystique of our friendship had been crushed by that experience. I mean, I understand, you know, 
It was a really pretty, pretty bad week for him to go and spend an entire week down there with somebody who's essentially not with him. On the other hand, um, he was probably fighting his own battles. I moved to New York in uh, October 76. I started my training program a couple months later. I spent the first two, two and a half years in the training program and then out of it, obsessing about and close to and, and spending all my time with the straight guy I was in love with who would eventually have a schism with me on that Caribbean vacation. Uh, so I really wasn't out there in the gay world. I didn't have any gay friends. I did put an ad just before the training program in the, in the national newspaper, The Advocate, all American and gay, seek same. And uh, I got 100 plus responses and I still have those letters and those photos and, the, and those replies. And someday I'll do something with it. Um, but I was, it turns out the training program took every minute of my time. I didn't realize that was gonna happen. So I wasn't able to really respond and course, correspond the way I'd planned. And only one guy was interested enough to stay in touch with me through the seven months before the program ended and I would, could actually meet him. And he was in Boston. And when we actually met, I wasn't attracted to him. And thankfully, he was willing to remain friends anyway. He became my only gay friend in the world, travel agent in Boston. Um, and I would go up to Boston and meet some of his friends, but I knew nobody in New York. And then I began to leave my job in 79. I went on that vacation with a straight guy that I was hung up on. A schism with him happened. And around that time, I finally began to meet and make gay friends. I met the guy who had become my first boyfriend at the Y, um, and he would pursue me and pursue me, and I let it happen. I met who, the guy who had become my best friend, who was a, had gone to the same graduate school as me, but a year after I left, we met at a grad school alumni party, and a few nights later I ran into him in a gay bar, and he, I was really attracted to him, but he was in a relationship. Now, I was so new to all this that it, I assumed he's in a relationship, he's off limits. He wasn't, but I, of course, for the first number of years of my gay career, I wouldn't go to bed with somebody in a relationship because I wouldn't want anybody doing that to me. So, you know, when you're young, you're kind of priggish and pure and, you know, you, you know have all the answers. But he ended up becoming my best friend. So all around 1979, my boyfriend came into my life. My best friend came into my life. Through him, I met other gay guys. I went out to Fire Island. I was in Fire Island for one of my first visits as a guest with my best friend and another best friend of his. And we were in this house and there was another guest from Chicago of another of the house members. And he was extremely attractive and I was smitten by him. And on the beach on Saturday, I learned that the feeling was mutual. So we snuck off and had sex in the dunes, full on. He, he fucked me, you know, all the sand getting in all the wrong places. But afterwards, it, I learned that he was meant to be the boy toy of one of the other house members, not my, mine. So I couldn't spend that evening hanging out with him. I went with my friends and we were going to the Ice Palace. In, we were in Fire Island Pines. Cherry Grove is the neighboring community. Those are the only two gay communities on Fire Island, which is a 36 mile long, quarter mile wide barrier reef protecting Long Island from the Atlantic Ocean. And these two communities are separated by about a mile. And you can either walk along the beach, which we did on the way to the disco evening, or you can walk through the meat rack, which is a wooded area where sex takes place 24 hours a day between the two communities uh, as an alternative. So we were going to the, to the Ice Palace in Cherry Grove, which is the Friday night spot. And my two friends were gonna do acid and I wasn't. I'd never done it. Well, I'd done it once, but it hadn't taken effect. Um, then they got in a little tiff and one wasn't gonna do it, and the, my best friend had already taken his tab. So he implored me, please, I don't wanna do this alone. So I succumbed, and I did acid. And I will abbreviate the situation. Trust me, it was a trippy evening. On our way back, we came through, the, on the boardwalk in Cherry Grove to where it ends, and suddenly you, you drop off of the boardwalk into the sand, and now you're in the meat rack. And we passed through all these groups of people and individuals having sex. I remember passing under a branch and coming face to groin or ass with a crew of eight people in a succubus of sex. And I don't know if a dick was pounding in an ass or a dick was going in and out of a mouth, but I 
on my haunches. I stood there for like 30 seconds. It felt like eternity, just watching in amazement. And I get up and I go join my friend who's already gone through that area. And I said, I, I, more or less, I discovered the secret to life. What are you talking about? I get it. We humans fuck it up. It's just sex. And, you know, I thought I'd like, you know, been enlightened. So when we get back home, I went and woke up the guy that I had sex with the prior date. For whatever reason, it was in his own bedroom rather with the guy he was supposed to be boy toys with. And he's from the Midwest, and I just knew he'd never seen anything like the meat rack. So I said, you got to come with me. So I dragged him back to the meat rack. So now we're in the meat rack in this clearing, and we start enacting this coach-athlete fantasy with him fucking me from behind and me with my arms up against the, the, the tree branches like this. And a crowd surrounds us. Now, I'm on acid. I would never in my right mind do this straight. But I'm fucked up on a drug, and I'm with somebody I care about. And all of a sudden, I'm getting to the point of coming, and there's a guy kneeling in front of me, looking up, like almost begging. I'm like, go ahead. It's all yours. And that was, I mean, I don't want to say I'm proud of it, but that was an exception for me. Not something I would, I mean, I'm proud because it was fun and it's nice to tell, and it, and it happened with somebody I'm still in touch with. As an aside, he was so scarred by AIDS, he hasn't had sex since 1988 with anyone. The Mineshaft was an infamous sex club down in the meatpacking district where most people shed their clothes at the door, not everyone, checked them, wandered around. There was an upstairs and a downstairs. I hung out with my friends in the upstairs front area. And we went to dinner first, and then we took mescaline, I believe, some drug that fucked us all up. And I would never have gone if I hadn't been on drugs and with friends, because it's not my scene. I also, they asked me to bring them there. I didn't have a clue. I went to Chris, my best friend. Chris, can you get us in? Sure. So we all went with Chris. And at the end of the evening, at 5 or 6 or 7 in the morning, we go to the Pink Teacup Cafe, a coffee shop with grizzled old waitress battle axes, who you went probably because of them, even though they were mean to you, you know, and had like greasy spoon breakfast. And everybody talked about, did you see this? And did you see that? And what about this? I hadn't seen any of it. Petrified as I was, I stayed close to the group in the front area. So two nights later, we went back. Same drugs, same everything. And I'm like, I'll be damned if I'm going to miss this. I, I got to at least see it. So I go downstairs and I emerge at the bottom of the stairs and there's a bathtub with a guy in it wanting to be, be peed on. I didn't pee on him then, but later on when I had to pee, I'm an obliging sort. So, okay, I peed on him. Uh, and then I went into the back room, the dark room, pitch black. I'm wandering through. Somebody pulls me up against them from behind, unbuckles my belt pulls down my, my pants and starts penetrating me from behind. Somebody else in front of me backs into me and I start fucking them. So now we're in a sandwich. At the end, I came, I pulled up my pants, I figured, well, okay, so now I've experienced everything they, they all talked about. And I wandered out and walked around, maybe that's when I peed on the guy, I don't know. Walked back upstairs with it as we started to leave and I had to get my, you know, whatever out of the coat check, I reached for my wallet and it was gone. It had been pickpocketed. Two or three days later, the group from San Diego and I went to Washington, D.C. by design for the first ever gay and lesbian march on Washington, October something, 1979. And it was a lot of fun. I have photos from there. And on the weekend, we ended up going to the Lost and Found, the big gay disco where I had actually come out in 1976 and met my first affair. And we're sitting there at like a beer blast on a Sunday afternoon at four. And all of a sudden, I'm like, my ass is burning. What the heck? And cut the strip short, ran back to New York, got introduced to my first ever gay doctor, an amazing guy who was mine for 25 years until he died of a rare blood disease, and uh, got diagnosed with gonorrhea and was given an injection and a couple of pills, and a couple of weeks later I was good to go because that was the way it was back then. You didn't have AIDS, you just had sexually transmitted diseases, and you could be back up on the horse within a couple of weeks after you had it. So I had it a couple of times. Um, so that's my second, if you will, free-for-all kind of story. One I'm less proud of because whereas the first one I did it with someone I cared about, freed by the drugs in public, this time I did it with who knows who, in public, in the dark, on drugs, 
and both got robbed and VD. But I lived to tell the story. I sublet my apartment in New York to a friend of a friend. I took my little brand, brand new Celica that had been my graduation gift a couple of years before, and I decided to drive cross country during an energy crisis when you had to buy $2 of gas at a time. That's all they would sell you until you got out of the Northeast and then it became less problematic. And I drove from New York to DC to Nashville all the way across the country. And I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I didn't have to be anywhere. I was not working. I aimed for San Diego where my brother had moved a year or so before. And I stopped in every city along the way that had a bar from Nashville to Little Rock to the depressing Discovery Disco to you know Texarkana to Lubbock to Dallas to Amarillo to Houston to Austin and all the way to San Diego where I spent the summer but I also drove up and down the coast visiting friends and family in LA and, and San Francisco. And in retrospect, what I was doing was learning to be gay. Because until that moment, I'd been submerged in my corporate world. I'd been hung up on my straight friend. I had no gay friends. I didn't know how to shed the mantle of corporatedom and, and closet at night and go out and do whatever gay men did and meet friends and have a social structure. I didn't have it. Um, and so I got picked up in bars or picked up guys in bars or the San Diego, the West Coast Production Company, WCPC, or Wussy Pussy for short. Uh, I walked in and a very handsome bartender at the front bar served me a beer and I left him and went to the dance floor. And five minutes later, somebody, a bar back, showed up with a, with a beer. Here, this is from Bo. I'm like, what? You know Bo? No. Bartender. Oh, it's from him. Oh, thank you. So I walk over to the bar to thank Bo because Mama taught me to be courteous. And I go, thank you for the beer. And he goes, sure, do you want to fuck later? And I'm like, uh, okay, because I'm now on vacation. In New York, I never would, I would like, can't we go to dinner? And I'm like, uh, whatever. And he fed me a dozen beers and three uh, quaaludes, which you're not supposed to mix. Uh, and I had to sit out in the car for an hour after the disco closed until he closed it down. Drove me home, thank God he was topping me because I was a, a wet noodle with all the drugs and alcohol. And had an amazing evening. We got up the next day and... Most people probably would have said, well, thanks, bud, see you later. I was like, so what do you want to do today? Because I'm about connection, right? He's like, oh, okay. So we hung out. He became my summer boyfriend, but didn't stop me from sleeping with some of his friends, and it didn't matter because that's the way the times were. I even went with him to Black's Beach where I got a citation for running in the nude on my five-mile run along the beach, which I still have. And uh, that was my summer of learning how you met gay men so that when I returned to New York at the end of the summer, and by the way, I have a yellow legal pad, double-sided, with a list of every bar I visited, how many times, plus or minus or neutral, and a few keywords for older, unattractive, you know, clony, you know, preppy, whatever. Uh, so I have my little, my little bar guide from 1979 of every city across the country. I don't think there's a lesson. It's just, I was frightened and rigid before that. I would go into a bar and I'd stand on the corner like this, sending signals, stay away from me, because I felt uncomfortable. Many of my friends love the chase. There's a smile or a wink or whatever, right? I'm like petrified. It, again, it's, it's the, the ability to walk over and say hello and take a risk about being rejected. It's like the Grand Canyon I have to jump over. I, over time, learned how to reach out to people and start a conversation in a non-sexual way and at least connect and then sense if there was a, a connection between us. But before I went on that trip, I didn't know how to do any of that. When I got back to New York, took a year trying to figure out what work I wanted to do, tried a couple of other careers, didn't like it, and then interviewed with Lehman Brothers in their training program and got in in the capital market side and went back into Wall Street for what would be a 15-year uh, hiatus in that job. Uh, but in that time, I had learned some of the tools of socializing in the gay world. And so I then was able to, and I had to be very closeted in Lehman Brothers because I could have been fired. Very least, I wouldn't have been paid what I, what I was worth. And so I was able to do that during the day and hide it from my, my colleagues. And then at night, go out with friends and, you know, and 
not worry. Whereas prior to that trip, I just didn't have it within me to navigate the complexities of, of a compartmentalized life. I get people sending me dick pics, contacting me, wanting to do uh, cam sex, you know? No. I mean, not because I'm uh, morally opposed to it. It doesn't appeal to me enough to excite me, and if I'm not gonna respond in an excited fashion, why do I wanna do it? My scruff description, page description is, prefer dating to fast food sex, and that's the way I've always been. It's something that was always underneath, and I never had any idea of what I was fighting against and finally recognized the existence of this and that it defined me within the last few months. Uh, demisexuality refers to people who, in order to be fully aroused sexually, need not only to find someone physically attractive, but to have established an emotional connection with them. I put a name to who I am after 45 years of being out. I didn't know I was demisexual for all that time. I knew I was different. I knew that on a subconscious level that I felt uncomfortable putting myself in those situations, but I didn't know why. I knew I wasn't like others in terms of just getting off was all that mattered, but I was operating in an environment where that was the dominant ethos because we were outsiders, we were outcasts. We were told we, we couldn't have the uh, you know establishment symbols of, of happiness, marriage, a home, a, a wife, kids, a picket fence, a dog, and a station wagon. So we were kind of like discovering for the first time that we could be open about our sexuality and still manage life reasonably happily. And so we're like, fine, fuck you. I don't want what you have. We're queer. We can have sex with whomever we want, whenever we want, as often as we want, and we're going to do that. So that was the, the mantra. Not everybody followed that. There were couples, of course, in the middle of it. But most people, I would have guys come up to me and say, literally, do you want to fuck? Like, go home. And I'm like, well, sure. I mean, you're, I, I think you're hot. Can we go to dinner first? And they'd walk away and find somebody else who was ready to go have sex five minutes later. And I had to learn to play by those rules. So if I'm a demisexual but didn't really know it, how did I operate in an era when partnerships and coupledom weren't common? When I was single, what, what did I do? I've never had fuck buddies because to me, the idea of having sex with somebody I don't feel something about is a non-starter. I've had people that I've had repeat sex with that I weren't, wasn't in relationships with. In my mind, that was dating. I kind of had to fool myself. I would meet someone, I would find them attractive, there would be a chemistry between us. I knew that it might only be a one night stand, but I would grab onto the feeling that existed between them and me and, and magnify it and enjoy it. And the sex was fine, don't get me wrong, I like sex. But the part that I most responded to was lying in that person's arms after sex was over, sharing our life stories and feeling connected. So for me, kissing and connecting are as important as anything else. For me, kissing can be sex. I don't need an orgasm to prove that I felt something. I mean, don't get me wrong, I like orgasms too, but I don't care if I orgasm or not. It's more the feeling of being close to someone. And so I created little mini romances in every one night stand I had in order to function. I was aware that one night stands were probably not gonna last, but I focused on the emotional connection we had in that evening. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Uh, the thing I enjoy most is kissing and cuddling and sharing the stories because that's my way of connecting. But in terms of actual, the sex itself, once we're kissing, I can follow somebody else's lead. If not, I've just basically attacked their body. I, I mean, if I'm attracted to someone and I care about them, I want to devour, their, devour them, not literally. But, you know, I want, I want to taste them. I want to smell them. I want to lick them. I want to feel them. I want to have them in me, maybe be in them. It's, you just want to be as close as possible. And it really doesn't matter what manifestation of that desire is. It's the, the feeling I have of attraction to them being fulfilled uh, that's important. I've learned in life that I can be chameleon-like, that I'm, I'm not kind of fixed 
whether what time I go to bed, when I need to eat, when I go to the bathroom. I'm somebody who can adjust, and that's held me in good stead. Don't get me wrong, you have to have a core. You, you have to know who you are and kind of more or less stick to that. But for moments at a time, why not? You know, I've been with people that have foot fetishes. I've been with people who I'm trying to think, oh, fisting. You know, I, I think sex is a panoply, and the more open you are to trying it, is, for me, as long as I have a sense of connection with my partner, the more joy that will come from it. Since I'm more concerned with the connection than the activity, I'm able to go along or, or lead. It's not like I, I, I mean, I've got a kind of a dynamic, almost take charge personality, but when it comes to sex, I prefer to see what the other person's preference is because I'm really, you know, amicable about what we do. My best sex was, of course, when I got fucked and blown at the same time. So while I was dating the guy who was effectively my first boyfriend, you know, he was only a top. I didn't know at the time whether I was going to be only a bottom or not, but okay, fine. Uh, he was pretty good at it, and it was fun, particularly when I was drunk and high, which he made sure I was much of the time, uh, that we were having sex. And somewhere in the process, he unfolded on me his special trick, his capability, and told me later how special it was, and I didn't realize it, and I would someday, and he was right. He would put me on my back, lift my legs over his shoulders, enter me from the top, fuck me hard, bend over, and while fucking me, he was flexible enough that he could take my dick in his mouth and suck me off. So I would effectively be stimulated in my prostate and my penis at the same time. And I have never run into anybody else that can do that again. And he still wants to have another go at it, but you know, we'll see. I don't know if I've ever had true love. Who knows what true love is? That doesn't mean I haven't loved. It just means this fairy tale description and, and definition of what love is, right? Uh, but the first time I ever felt, what is the right word? Almost like when you like can't help yourself was the only model I've ever dated who I couldn't believe found me attractive and was a gorgeous man. And for three months, we, we saw each other every night, but he wouldn't make plans beyond the night at, at hand. And I didn't care. And I wanted it to go on, and it didn't. And I ended up letting it continue as kind of a fuck buddy because I was so enamored of him. And when that stopped, it took me a year to get over him. So there was something, he filled a need in me to feel attractive to someone like that. Because I'll be honest with you, I didn't know how to get along with his model friends. It was, my world is just so different, you know. Uh, but that's the first time I ever felt that way about someone. and and it lasted for a while. And then, jumping ahead, I think the only true love I may have had is my last partner for 12 years. And we were, we were never meant to be together. We were so damn different. It was a fight the whole 12 years to compromise and find a common ground. But I just loved it and him and someone always thinking about me and vice versa. And despite those struggles, um, I, I still aspire to that, but I, you, I'd rather be a, a single than be in a relationship that isn't working. We're fortunate that we've become a desired commodity for the first time. When I was younger, I wouldn't look at guys older than me other than my first boyfriend because they were self-loathing. They'd been socialized to be. They weren't in shape physically. They didn't work out. They went to bars after work and were often luscious. And the only thing they might have been able to offer was mentorship, job, you know, leads. But there were a lot of jobs available in the 70s for young people like me. So there wasn't that same balance between the generations. Now, it's a confusing time for a 23, 25-year-old in their early workforce. How do they make their way into a job? It's not going to last more than two years in all likelihood. This guy's older. He's in shape. He's, he's proud of himself. He's made it. There's a mystique about him. Maybe he can help me figure out how to do it. Maybe he has some connections for me. At the very least, he'll pay for dinner. You know, and so I know more people in age gap relationships of 10 years or more in the gay world now than I do people who are comparable in age. And so there's just been a, a change in that dynamic. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of people who are ageist 
and a lot of people who aren't interested in, in having mentors or learning from people like us. And one of the things I'm trying to do is to bring our generations together because I have insight, knowledge, and wisdom that you ought to value. But on the other hand, you can be my connection to a new world and new technologies and a new way of looking at things. I mean, the whole idea of the, of the rainbow spectrum. I mean, people my age have a real hard time dealing with all of the they's and them's and, you know, and uh, because we are socialized a certain way for decades, they're being exposed for the first time and they put it into those categories and they're fine with it. Well, having people who are younger to kind of translate and interpret and help move you along is kind of what you get in exchange for giving them the secret to how you get ahead. As an older gay man who's been through a lot, I'm attentive to my partner and I am willing to try most things. And I think a lot of younger men are just kind of wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. I mean, they're so horny, they want to get off. They're, they're fully, they're very energetic, but they're not very experienced and that shows up. So that's one reason why we older gay men, I think, are popular now. You get exposed to different sexual practices and acts along the way, you try them or not. Of course, the big lesson, not related to sexual practices, but related to dating or having sex at all, is not holding out this list of have-to-haves. And re Because realizing if you do, you're probably gonna forego some of the best experiences of your life. Trying to take the individual you meet for whom they are and not judging them by the cover entirely. I mean, we are men, we are pretty surface-oriented, but you know, not saying I have to have somebody this tall and this look and, you know, because uh, none of my boyfriends ever ended up matching that perfect ideal that I expected. And everyone always thinks that you, whatever you're with as a boyfriend is exactly what you want. It's what life handed you. And if you were wise, you took it, you know, because what's important is not necessarily the body size, shape, look, whatever. It's all of the packages, a lot of which I, I learned from my time with the model. He was so gorgeous and that was so important to me. And the moment we started seeing each other every day, the looks became secondary. I took for granted that I had a good looking boyfriend. Now everything else about how we fit together became the most important thing or the most obvious thing and, and either made you happy or unhappy. So be careful that you're not only looking for looks because it's not gonna be enough. People, at least in my age cohort, who were really active uh, leaders in gaining the rights we have now are taken for granted, not listened to, sometimes denigrated by younger people who feel like they're not woke enough. And the problem is they run, they run the risk. I've, I've had a veteran of Stonewall, an activist lesbian from the 70s, tell me she no longer is an activist and wants nothing to do with the community. We need to find a way to pull together. And we've got the right wing attacking us and we're doing half their work for them. So. In my role as an accidental gay historian, I try to create a stronger sense of community through shared storytelling. My Instagram is my story, and engaging people with that and asking for their perspectives on it. The website is people putting up their stories in writing and with photos. And the, the podcast series is interviewing remarkable queer people from around the world whose stories everyone should know. Give back to the community. Be open to everyone, right? Try to understand people who are different. You know, the idea that there's this huge transphobic element in the gay male community, it, it, it astounds and, and irritates me to no end. Gay men who deny the, the existence and the meaning of trans people need to understand and realize it's parallel to what we went through. We denied ourselves until we finally owned up to it and came out. So it's only in hearing each other's stories that we can hopefully find that understanding and create a real sense of community, rather than every June get together for pride and act like we're a community. I honestly think I stopped being ashamed pretty early. It was simply the reality of living in a very homophobic business world and being part of the financial industry, which is the most conservative, that I had to be self-protective. The country's been changing around us. The era in which I came out, it was impossible to be open. The trick is how do you learn not to hate yourself in the middle of an, uh, an environment which isn't accepting? Mm -hmm. I've been out for 46 years. And for the last 26 of those years, I've been comfortable enough being out that I have participated on boards of LGBTQ nonprofits. 
Um, I was on the founding board of Glisten for nine years. I was the founding board of Athlete Ally for 10 years, including its chair for the first five years. I'm on the board of NewFest, the New York LGBT Film Festival. I'm on the board of Stonewall National Museum and Archives, or the, the Leadership Council. And part of that experience has led me to the point where I feel totally unashamed and deserving of all the experiences I've had, the feelings I've had, and, and the parts of me that might or might not be acceptable to others in certain parts of the country or globe. But I recognize not everybody's in as privileged a position as me, where they don't have to worry about an employer or their family or straight friends or a church, and they can't really openly attest to their true selves in the way that I can. But I still try through all of my social media, my blog, my website, and my podcast interview series to represent the view that no matter how others may find parts of you unacceptable, all of it is acceptable and you have nothing you need to be ashamed of. You may not want to broadcast that yet. It may take a while before you're at a point in your life where you can do that. But please don't hold on to any shame or any guilt around who you are and what you've done. Assuming you haven't hurt anybody, everything that you've done and is part of you is fine. You need to trust who you are and stick to your guns and not give in in order to be popular or liked or desired. I would say it's important that we learn to be truly accepting of ourselves and as content as one can be. And that's, that's when you really meet someone else and find yourself in a relationship that's sustainable and loving and, and happy. Be open to everyone, you know, don't put prescriptions on what you need in your relationship because you're likely to lose some of the best opportunities that you might ever find. That's an easy one to say and a hard one to, to execute, but you just never know who your next partner is going to be, what they're going to look like, what they're going to have to offer. And if you're closed before you even meet them, you miss out on life. I have an ex who entered my life, I thought, as a total top and left it as a total bottom. Your sexuality is constantly evolving. If you think who you are now is who you'll be 20 or 30 years ago, you're largely mistaken. I can't tell you how you'll change. I think some of it has to do with experience. Some of it has to do with discovering things that you hadn't explored before. So you need to remain open to that and not hidebound in who you consider yourself to be. Fruitball interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitballpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write Dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information.
Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And, of course, you can also follow us, for now, on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.